This week on The Short Game, okay, Grabbin' Gary, it's hero time. discussion about great storytelling and craft in video games that you can probably finish in less hours than you've got fingers. I'm your host, Reagan Kelly, and I'm joined this week, as always, by my best bro host, Shane. Describe yourself, Shane. I don't really like that shtick. You don't like that shtick? I'm sorry, That's my shtick! It's not a good shtick. Don't you, don't you think we need to, uh, to set the scene for our listeners so that they can picture in their minds what twin gods they now hear why don't you just ask what are you wearing (laughs) well what are you wearing shane jeans wow all right well you and i have that in common and a t-shirt among other things we are here this week to discuss double fine and in particular their fantastic recent adventure game broken age uh, Double Fine, for those of you who might not be truly acquainted with their history and with uh, uh, their leader, if you will, Tim Schafer, uh, is a really amazing game company. It was founded in about uh, the year 2000 by Tim Schafer, who is a really, really important game designer to me. Um, Shane and I were talking about this a little bit earlier. Absolutely. His games from LucasArts really formed... Some of my most memorable gaming experiences when I was a kid, uh, especially the Monkey Island games and without a doubt the Day of the Tentacle games. Some of these games came along a little bit earlier than I really began as a gamer or had access to this kind of thing. But um, right up until the release of some of the later ones, I think the most the latest one was probably Grim Fandango. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are games that just stood out to me as very, very different from the kind of games that were being released at the time. They were so very much focused on characterization and story, whereas most other games at the time, you know, great games though they were, um, were things that were focused on, you know, mechanics or graphics or creating a beautiful 3D world or creating a great arcade-style game. And all of those are great and noble uh, things, but storytelling through games is something that always really stood out to me and nobody does it like tim schaefer mm-hmm. does it tim schaefer started his career at LucasArts. i mean i assume i don't know much about his his uh work before that but uh, my understanding was he was pretty close to fresh out of college when he got hired on at LucasArts. uh he sent in his resume to them and bugged them enough that they hired him and he worked on the original maniac mansion which uh is incredibly famous for being one of the first really great adventure games that also featured a lot of humor. Um, But he worked on that game and kind of worked his way up towards being the co-designer of the original Monkey Island game, Secret of Monkey Island, Monkey Island 2, and also co-designed Day of the Tentacle, which was the sequel to Maniac Mansion. Yeah, Day of the Tentacle was the first one that I played, but I know that... uh... 
Maniac Mansion really set the the prototype for adventure games and really set up a lot of the code that were the engine it was reused for almost all of the early uh, early adventure games from LucasArts. And if you want to play any of these games, and you should, it's pretty hard to get your hands on them in a really legit way these days. I, I think there are you may be able to pick some of them up on uh, good old games uh, or maybe on some of these other services, but essentially the way to play these games today is with a... It's not technically correct to call it an emulator, but it's close enough. There's a, it's a virtual machine. So yeah, it's a virtual machine uh, emulator type app called ScumVM, S-C-U-M-M-V-M, uh, which uh, is emulating or uh, re-implementing the engine behind all those early LucasArts games. Uh, Scum, I think, stood for... Uh, oh, what was it? Something like source code for Maniac Mansion or like... Yeah, something like that. The MM is for Maniac Mansion. And all of it was building on the really pioneering ideas behind Maniac Mansion. Uh, Tim Schafer, as I understand it, was a little late to be really, truly formative in the creation of Maniac Mansion. I think he came in to Double Fine when they were working on the Nintendo port of Maniac Mansion and worked on that. He came into, uh, not Double Fine, to LucasArts. Oh, excuse me. Yes, he came into LucasArts. Um... And LucasArts at that time was turning out all sorts of amazing original content. Some stuff based on existing Lucas properties. Obviously, they had like the really excellent uh, Indiana Jones point-and-click adventure game. But uh, primarily, they were doing new stuff. They uh, had the Monkey Island games, the Day of the Tentacle games. Later on, they had Full Throttle. I think that may have been the first game that Tim was the lead designer on or the director of or whatever the phrase is. Full Throttle was really cool. It was a sort of biker-themed point-and-click adventure game. Oh, yeah. It was excellent. Very funny. Had this standard point-and-click adventure style, but incorporated a lot of other elements, too. The interesting thing about about that one, to me, is that it was the first time where what up to that point had been a very defined genre of point-and-click adventure, which we haven't fully explained. It's a game style in which you're presented with scenes uh, and you move your character around uh, by pointing and clicking uh, with a mouse. It's a very computer-oriented game style. And you also collect items for an inventory, and it was very much based around uh, puzzle solving, where you would find items to complete puzzles, Uh, you would click on items and perform actions, so uh, especially in the earlier games, there were lots of specific actions. They were it was uh, grew out of the text adventure genre, where you would be typing things like "go left, look at the door," you know, "move up," things like that. And in the point and click adventure games, you'd have a menu of actions, and you would choose an action and then click on an object in the world. Mm-hmm. Or often you would have your inventory and you would use inventory items on things in the world. So, for example, in one of the Monkey Island games, you know, you might have uh, your uh, rubber chicken with a pulley on it. And you'd find that somewhere in the game and think, what on earth do I do with this? How is this going to relate to anything in the game? And somehow later on, you'd find some way to incorporate that with maybe some other objects and use that to solve some puzzle or... or accomplish something really cool um, and that was really where tim schaefer and double and uh, and uh, lucasarts games really shined was that it wasn't just oh i need to find a hammer because i need to pound some nails it was really inventive funny clever puzzles that weren't obvious 
but also had sort of a bizarre internal kind of cartoon logic to them. Really, really fun games to play. So if you at all can, uh, you absolutely should pick up and play Day of the Tentacle. It doesn't take a long time to play. I think you might class this as a, as a short game. And it's, uh, it's still playable today on almost any device using that Scum VM software we were talking about earlier. So let's talk about uh, about Tim leaving and, and founding Double Fine and, and what Double Fine is all about. Sure. And my understanding, and I don't have a great deal of insight into what Tim Schafer was thinking in the year 2000, but um, my understanding was essentially he wanted to make Psychonauts. That was his reason for leaving. Um, and I know, Shane, Psychonauts is a game that we both played and really liked. Absolutely. Psychonauts is a game that I think shows that Schaefer was kind of branching out when I was when I mentioned um, Full Throttle being not strictly an adventure game. Full Throttle started to branch out into a adventure game plus uh, driving and action elements, and I think that's where Tim Schaefer really started to look at other genres and how he could interpret his ideas about character and story into other gameplay mechanics and other uh, genres of gameplay. And Psychonauts is really, in my mind, a perfect modern platform adventure game. There's a complete synthesis of the kind of hunt and fetch and solve puzzle elements of an adventure game and the action-based platforming elements of a platformer. Plus phenomenal humor, which is always sort of Tim Schafer's hallmark. Oh, yeah, it's, uh, it goes without saying. Goes without saying in this kind of game. That that game, uh, if you haven't seen or played it, is based around the idea of a summer camp for psychics, and a bunch of little kid psychics diving into the minds of other people and experimenting in their in their brains. And each person's brain is a different platform level. Really, really oh, yeah. fun game. And you can pick that up today on Steam. Uh, there's a great PC port of it that has been continually updated to work really well on modern modern stuff. I think it originally came out on PlayStation 2 and probably you know some what? other platforms in that era. You know what? Stop, stop. Just stop Stop listening. Go play Psychonauts. No, 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 no. Come no. back later. No. Finish the show. No. And then play Psychonauts. All right. Do whatever. So whatever you want. Double Fine is a company that he founded after leaving LucasArts in 2000. Uh, some of their great games, he be- they began with Psychonauts. They followed up with Brutal Legend. Is that right? Yes, which I have not played. Have you played Brutal Legend? I have not played it either. I am looking forward to it. I've never yeah, found it. It's sitting in my Steam yet. library. I picked it up in some kind of a bundle a little while ago. Now, that's not to say it's not attractive, but so it's kind of a weird game concept. Reading about it, my understanding of it is that it's actually kind of a combination of an action game and an rts like a real-time strategy game um like a real-time strategy game designed to be played with a controller and the theme looks really fun your your central character is like a heavy metal roadie heavy metal i think tim schaefer really likes heavy metal roadies he kind of looks like one (laughs) just a little bit he's a little more clean cut and it's voiced by uh jack black Yeah. yeah actually who's also in uh in broken age Anyway, um, that looks really cool, but I have nothing to say about it apart from that it looks like a really cool game. There's also a PC port of it on Steam, and I'm pretty sure that one made it to the Xbox 360 and the PS3. Is that correct? Don't know. Anyway, that game I have not played. Hopefully we'll get a chance to play it someday soon. But 
Uh, Psychonauts was a huge critical success, and I think it was a pretty moderate um, commercial success. But Brutal Legend was a critical success, not quite on the level with Psychonauts, but, you know, people liked it. But I think commercially it didn't do quite so well. And so what happened was that they had been expecting to, and in fact they'd already kind of been lined up to do a second Brutal Legend game. They had begun planning for it and they were already working on it in some way and then their publisher kind of pulled out and told them that they were not going to get greenlit to do brutal legend 2 ouch so that left the company kind of looking for their next project without anything really in the pipeline and so tim schaefer went back to something that he had implemented as a kind of an internal way of blowing off steam within the company and a way of kind of developing people within the company. Um, prior to this, they'd already had a kind of a tradition that's now kind of famous in the game industry called Amnesia Fortnite. And the premise there would be that once a year for two weeks, a fortnight, um, the team at Double Fine would forget whatever they were doing whatever project they were working on. In this case, it was Brutal Legend, the original one at the time. And they dropped all of that and broke into smaller teams and created prototypes for games that excited them personally. So out of that, they had a lot of, you know, only partially developed internal prototypes for games that got uh, kind of interesting uh concepts yeah this is always really interesting to me personally i, I think the cool thing about it it kind of reminds me of google's 20 percent time mm -hmm. and i know this kind of thing is not completely uncommon in the tech industry uh but it kind of takes the idea of like an indie game jam and it turn and it sort of does it within an existing company and the results have been really interesting this kind of concept, though, actually, I think sort of predates the popularization of the idea of the indie game jam. I, I think this in some ways kind of predates that that concept. Oh, really? Okay. We're talking about like 2002 or three or something. I don't know exactly where this is, but that very first um, Amnesia Fortnite, a lot of games came out of that that eventually saw production because the company had no major sort of triple a status games in the pipeline you know costume quest which i loved and i just beat recently and i think is a fantastic little cute rpg um, stacking which is a kind of an adventure game but with a really really bizarre concept where your characters are all little uh, matroshka dolls that can jump into and stack within one another there were a few other games as well, things that maybe are a little less exciting to me personally, but you know, there was a game that eventually developed into a uh, Sesame Street game that they released commercially and you know, apparently made some money on, and, uh, and something called Iron Brigade, which is some kind of uh, mech game that unfortunately I, I know almost nothing about. But in any case, the, that, really, that game jam allowed them to have a pipeline of concepts and game designs and even prototypes ready to go and teams small teams within the company ready to produce them that let them make these smaller more focused little games that were uh, distributed as downloads rather than as big disc publication productions um which i think really changed them... the shape of the company yeah, this made them profitable again it did and it essentially turned them in from what was I wouldn't necessarily call them like a triple A type of company, but they were a company producing big games. 
but they did this and suddenly they were essentially an indie game company. They were producing these games on a totally different scale from what they had been doing before and they were finding success with it. They were producing these little games. So that was such a huge success that they eventually ran a Kickstarter campaign. Uh, This is something that is probably a little bit famous already in the games industry, but basically... Yeah, if you're into games, you probably heard about Double Fine Adventure. The long and short of it is that they went to Kickstarter. Tim Schafer, who, you know, he's a relatively famous face in the gaming industry, he went directly to his very passionate fans and he said, fund an adventure game. You know, everybody wants me to make an adventure game. Uh, let's do it. Uh, he, they managed to pull in a absolutely record-setting Kickstarter over a million dollars. No, no, over $3.5 million. Over $3.5 million. It, it was, at the time, by far the biggest Kickstarter campaign to date. Uh, well, at that time. And uh, it still stands as one of probably the top five or something. It's really up there. So, uh, and I think that was a really cool thing because essentially he had been wanting to go back to this old form that he'd started in, you know, adventure games. It's what I think his fans wanted him to go back to that. Yeah. People had been essentially begging him to, but working within the previous, you know, the, the model that he'd been working in previously, that wasn't possible because publishers didn't want to publish one of these games. First of all, they're not popular on consoles. They're really only popular on uh, desktop uh, PCs because you have to point also click. Exactly. Now, I think I think that they've got a big chance to come back on tablets, and I think we could talk about that more as we talk about Broken Age. But um, but they're definitely not a game style that's popular on consoles because Ada, shut up, <laughs> shut up, Ada. Hey, that's our third. Uh, that's our third co-host uh, for the week. This is this is my dog, Ada. Nate, by the way, is... Uh, Has turned into a dog. <laughs> and we've renamed him Ada. Yes. No, Nate's, uh, Nate's out. Nate has a cool rock band, and they are uh, performing a show tomorrow cool. night, so he's at band practice. How cool is that, right? We're the two losers who are sitting at home on a, on a Thursday night recording a podcast while Nate is out playing with his band. God. Nate, you're, you're too cool for us, Nate. Way too cool for us. Genesis. I can rock and roll, but, you know, I don't. Can you now? Yeah. So anyway, um, Double Fine ran this Kickstarter campaign without a game concept in mind. You know, they hadn't even, they hadn't begun production. They didn't have anything to show for it. Essentially, all they had was Tim Schafer's face on a camera saying, I would like to make another adventure game. And I'd like, I don't know what they asked for. I think it was something like $100,000 to do it. He said, it's going to be a quick little thing. We're going to bang it out and we'll be done with it by October. You know, I think that their initial plan was to be done with it in under a year and, um, and for it to be a really small production. But obviously the response, the fan response to the game was just insane. I think there was some element to the Kickstarter where they said they were going to like make a documentary and stuff oh, like yeah, that yeah. too. Yeah, that was really cool. They, um, I never actually caught up on that element of it. I saw quite a bit of it. Long story short, they uh, they had a, a film crew come in and film them making the game. And Tim Schafer, uh, to his uh, to his credit, is a, a really funny guy on camera, so it's really fun to watch. But basically, it's just a, a long video of the uh, of the production of, co- of the game. Just just two hours of 
people over the shoulder while they type code. And fascinating code it was. Tim Schaefer, you just made a million dollars in 24 hours. What are you, what are you doing? Yeah. I've got to make a game. Story about a boy and a girl, and they both have two different parallel stories going on. And the player can jump back and forth between them. A young girl who's been chosen for this big honor that she finds out is actually being sacrificed to a horrible monster in order to save her town. And her story is about choosing to break out of that arrangement. And then the boy has grown up alone on a spaceship that takes care of his every needs and creates entertainment for him and takes care of his food, his health and everything. But he's all by himself out in space. Do you know how to repair hexapals? As long as it's safe. And free of conflict. That sounds like a no. I just escaped the Maiden's Feast, and now Mog Chakra is going to eat the town. You what? While you've been drifting through the universe, war has been raging across the galaxy. War? Between who? So the Kickstarter campaign launches, makes an unbelievable amount of money, but then it's a year and ten months and 15 days before they release the game. And they don't even release the whole game. So we are really today talking about Broken Age Act 1 or Part 1. Um, that is a little frustrating, but uh, Tim Schafer's decision was to, to... Because the game sort of exploded in popularity and they had this enormous amount of funding, I think they also really dramatically expanded the scope of the game. So they hired more and better voice actors. They put a larger team on the game. The length expanded. I think they kind of intended to kind of up the quality of the game quite a bit. And with all of that, the game really took a lot longer than they were expecting. So here we are in 2014, and the first part of the game has been released, essentially the first half. Uh, and we're not talking really about episodic content. We're really talking about the first half of the game. Fortunately, the way the game is structured, uh, it ends on a good note. And uh, I feel like it, it feels like a reasonably complete experience as is. But uh, anything we talk about today, we're talking about only part one. So if you're listening to this as a lucky listener in the distant future when the full game has been released... How's that flying car? Can't, yeah, how is that doing? Um, they, they should be releasing it sometime before the end of the year this year, but that's all we really know. They don't have a specific release date yet. Uh, I would assume it's probably going to be uh, in the latter half of 2014, or they would have said something already, but who knows? Um, but the game... I don't know, man. They, uh, they took their time with this part. I think they'll take the time with the rest. Well... I don't think it's like they're they're not starting from scratch. They already have art assets. They they've written their engine. The team is already assembled. Um, I'm sure they've even got you know they've they've finished the story. So I don't think it's going to be anywhere near as long a wait for part two as it was for part one. But it is a little bit difficult to uh, to sell somebody on the proposition of this game. That said, with adventure games, there's a lot of other companies, Telltale in particular, doing adventure games now. Uh, and a lot of them are releasing them as episodic content. So I actually think that form really works well for this type of game. So I, I don't hold it against them. And in fact, I really, really enjoyed the game and the form it's in. And I can't wait for part two. So Absolutely. I, I can't wait either. I think they should not make us wait. But uh... <laughs> you tell them. I I won't. So let's dive in and talk about Broken Age then. Yes. 
it is such an interesting game to me. Like the what what I'm looking for when I want to play a adventure game is beautiful hand drawn style or cartoon style artwork. I'm looking for interesting characters. I'm looking for out of this world situations and scenery. And this game really delivered all of that to me. Um, I'm also looking for um, puzzles that give me that kind of sense of an aha moment. Mm -hmm. And this game didn't really give me that, but we'll see, I think, in the second part. Yeah, we'll talk about the difficulty in a second, but um, to kind of... I, I kind of agree. A lot of the puzzles in this game were fairly easy. But in a typical adventure game, the puzzles do sort of increase in difficulty as you approach the end of the game. And because this isn't truly episodic content, it's more the first half of a game, I have a feeling that the puzzles were building in difficulty and that they will be a bit more tricky and mind-bending in the latter half. Or perhaps not, and I suppose we'll see. Yeah, I do hope so. Um, If not, I think even making this game one that is easy is probably a good strategy to build the audience for this type of game uh but that would disappoint me a little bit i would love to see a little bit of those more more of those aha moments where things really come together let's talk about the story of the game the story of the game is kind of a two-story system that's really Mm -hmm. interesting Mm -hmm. Uh, yes and of course i I don't want to spoil anything before we hit the spoiler break so Uh, I guarantee you, listeners, that we will not be spoiling anything that you wouldn't see in essentially a trailer for the game before we warn with the spoiler break. Okay, absolutely. I will try to uh, withhold my spoiler instincts. Um, But yeah, when, when when you start the game up, you're choosing between the two main characters. You can choose either right there at the beginning of the game. So we got two characters, uh... Living in apparently entirely different worlds. Uh, when you boot up the game, you see Shay, who is a young boy, maybe a teen, uh, sitting on, on a, a spaceship. spaceship of some kind. And also Vela, who lives in a kind of a fantasy world, very agrarian, lots of trees, that kind of thing. Um, so you can choose to play either one. And one of the really interesting mechanics of the game is that you can switch back and forth between the two at will. There's no... Uh, You just open the inventory screen, and you'll see a nice little shining face of whichever other character it is. And at any point in the story, you can switch back and forth, and no time is lost. So you can... uh, What's really been great about that is that if if I got stuck on a puzzle, which did happen a few times, um, it gives you something to do, you know, while you kind of wait and let that stew in your mind a little bit. And usually, I'd go and play the other character a little while, and... Then by the time I got stuck on that character, I would have had a little bit of a brainwave and head back to the other character and I'd get right through whatever it was I was stuck on. Yeah, I think I, I t- kind of stuck with each character for a big chunk of time as I played it. I would kind of get from one area to another and then switch characters. Uh, but it's nice that you're able to kind of feel it out any way you like and there's no wrong way to play it. You can uh, you could conceivably complete the entire game as one character and then turn right around and complete the entire game as the other Mm -hmm. and i think it should it should be said though that uh unlike some of his previous games like when i first heard about this character switching mechanic i immediately thought of day of the tentacle because day of the tentacle has this character switching mechanic you're controlling three different characters but you're controlling them more or less all at the same time and you actually use all three characters 
to solve the puzzles. I wouldn't say it's quite like a Lost Vikings kind of thing, but you know, there's certain characters who have different capabilities, and you kind of need all three to solve the puzzles in the story. They're all in the same world. But in Broken Age, the characters, at least so far, don't really interact in any way that I can perceive. So you are really playing two separate games simultaneously and switching back and forth between them at will. I'd like to see it in part two give us some of that element where you can you can use that as a as a puzzle solving mechanic. Uh, I I think it's safe to assume even as someone who begins playing the game that they won't keep these two plot lines completely separate for the duration of the game. So uh, I feel safe saying that pre spoiler horn, but uh, you could bleep me out if uh, I think that's if fair. You feel like um, there's. Uh, it's it's different from previous point and click adventure games that I've played in the past mechanically. Yeah, in a few ways. And I I've heard some complaints about that. I'm sympathetic to them. It yes, it has no actions that you take. It it just assumes an action based on what you're clicking and what you're doing and you can click and drag objects onto uh people or things in the world uh to use that object on another object, but, you know, it was never even clear. There was a point in the game at which I had to uh, combine two objects, and that would have been an action in a previous adventure game, and I suppose it should have been obvious to me that I should just drag one object onto another object right in my inventory, but it it's that kind of thing, that, that, that kind of difference between the old school games and this one uh, that sometimes threw me for a little bit of a loop and also made the game feel a little bit more simplistic. Well, here's where I where I think all that comes from. Um, this game was designed from day one, I believe, to be available on Macs, PCs, Linux, and also tablets, both Android and iOS. It's not actually out on those touch devices yet, but everything about the interface, from the inventory screen to the way the interactions work... Uh, everything about it seems designed for touch. So, for example, the fact that all of those actions you were describing are more contextual. You know, in in something like Monkey Island, you'd have a a, a menu of of things. You know, you'd have a a look. You could click on something to look and examine it, or you could click on something to interact with it. And usually, that would be like a right and left click. Uh, and you could also um, click to select an object, and your cursor would become that object, and you'd then click to interact using an object. Whereas in Broken Age, it's a drag and drop kind of inter- interaction. So I think a lot of those elements that to a seasoned player of adventure games might seem a little bit simplistic or uh, or frustrating are actually just sort of byproducts of the fact that they were designing this to be a multi-platform title and probably the place where in the long run this game will see the most play is on ios or on tablet interfaces yeah i think it's gonna be a great game on a tablet um it's gonna look beautiful on a smaller screen like that the art style to me just is better than just about any other adventure game that i've played save for grim fandango which to me had just one of the most unique and interesting art styles of any adventure game i've played true although this is 2d really beautiful painterly uh pictures whereas that was a three-dimensional game so that was a little bit of a different style it really reminded me of a children's book and specifically of uh books like the stinky cheese man 
oh, you know, I thought of exactly the same thing. It has that interesting kind of like, uh, I don't know if you, yeah, how do you describe that? Uh, well, it's, it was a combination of the textures and the little triangle noses and, uh, the kind of cut out elements of it, uh, or, or that, uh, book by the same author about the, uh, uh, about the big bad wolf, those kinds of books, but it's yeah. definitely, it's got a, the feel of a children's book. I'm probably connecting it with that one because that was one of my favorite children's books when I was growing up. But, uh, you know, this could be, this could be the children's book of a of a new modern era on a tablet for some young person today mm -hmm. you know and it is a totally child appropriate game but there is so much for adults to appreciate too i really think it's a uh, a fantastically produced game from an artistic standpoint the double fine artists have just done a fantastic job and also the music is really good apparently they had the soundtrack uh, recorded by the melbourne symphony orchestra which uh, just sounds really lovely it's a lot of just beautiful music to accompany the game Mm -hmm. absolutely and you know along with the music the dialogue was excellent the uh i think they had excellent voice acting for all the characters yeah it was really uh, funny yeah I, I would agree like to me like right off the bat i started off as villa and the funniest thing on earth to me was her grandmother oh my uh and her grandfather both the the scenario for villa that she's confronted with when she first wakes up, is that she's being summoned by her little sister uh, because it is, what do they call it? Maiden's the Feast? The Maiden's Feast. Yes. And, uh, you know, when I heard the phrase Maiden's Feast, I pretty much assumed correctly uh, that she was going to be eaten by some kind of <laughs> dragon. Uh, I, was, I was actually pretty uh, surprised at that element. Um, very soon you discover that that the tradition of the town, Vela lives in uh, Sugar Bunting, which is a baking town. And one of the many things they bake are beautiful dresses for their maidens to wear. So that every 14 years, when the mysterious villain of the game, Mog Chothra, arrives. A powerful and illustrious Grand Mog. Oh yes, a Grand Mog. Uh, every 14 years, when Mog Chothra arrives, Mog Chothra... Uh, will eat some of the maidens of the town and therefore spare the rest of the town destruction. Pretty morbid, really, but actually treated with this with this reverence by all the characters. You know, the grandmother is so excited about, oh, Mog Chathra is coming to... And it's such an honor that Vela will be chosen to be fed to Mog Chathra. You kind of feel for this character who seems to be the only sane person in a mad world. I think that's really both of the characters seem to be the only sane person in a world gone crazy. Yeah. Uh, where for Vela, everyone seems to be just gleefully giving up their lives to this horrifying monster. Uh, and all the other girls are overjoyed to be part of this, you know, competing to be eaten. And we don't want to get too far into that because I feel like that those those scenes that we would get into would definitely be diminished if they were spoiled for someone. So if you're personally, I think that if you are uh, listening to this, Reagan is the final arbiter of uh, spoilerdom. But I urge you to go ahead and play this game now if you're considering it. Uh, go ahead and go ahead and get right off. I'm going to give you a second. 
You think it's time for the spoiler break? I really think Trademark. it's time for the spoiler break. All right, let's hit the spoiler break. All right, so uh, the spoiler break having uh, having passed. Yes, so Vela is about to be eaten by Mog Chothra. She is seemingly the only person not uh, not totally excited by the concept of feeding the maidens of the town to this horrible beast. Although, actually, like this is a this it's striking how calm she is which I thought was hilarious. It's not so much that she's horrified by the idea of dying or being eaten. It's more that she just thinks, this doesn't seem fair or right. Wow, this this sucks. This is dumb. Why aren't we fighting this thing? Why don't we kill Mog Chothra? And that's what's really hilarious about her throughout the whole game is she's so focused. She wants to kill Mog Chothra. Every character she meets, one of her dialogue choices is, so can you help me kill Mog Chothra? You know, she meets the uh, the people in the Cloud City, Maryloft, and she, you know, they're unrelated in any way, but she asks them, can you help me kill Mog Chothra? She meets a tree, a talking tree in the forest, and she asks the tree, hey, can you help me kill Mog Chothra? She's so focused, and every time that came up, I had a laugh, because it's great. Everything about Vela was really charming and fun. I'm going to be happy when she, when she finally kills Mog Chothra. Well... If we're already past the spoiler break, we can... Oh, okay. We can talk about it. We can talk about it. She, (laughs) at halfway through the game, she finally gets to kill Mog Chothra, but we'll talk about that when we get to it. And we haven't really spoken much about the other character, Shay. My name is Shay, and this is my life on the incubator vessel Bassa Nostra. Teleporter, activate. It's a lifeboat. An escape pod. It carried me to safety when my world was dying. I can't really complain. Hey, easy, computer. The ship takes care of me. Full green nutrient paste. Feeds me. Entertains me. I think in its own weird way it loves me. I know it's hard. You've given up so much. Uh Uh-huh. But I've discovered it's also lying to me. Oh, honey, you can't come in here. I'm working on a surprise for you. Sheltering me from the conflicts raging throughout the galaxy. The injustices out there that I could be fighting. But this ship would never let me put myself in danger. What am I? Your prisoner? Just until I'm sure you're safe. So it's time for a mutiny. Time to put aside childish things. Time to grab the wheel of this ship. And steer it straight into the storm. I I really... Some of my favorite elements of the game were Shay's plot. Even though I liked the characters better in the other plotline, really because there's not many characters in Shay's plotline, Shay's plotline was very, very cool and interesting to me. He's living on this spaceship where all his needs seem to be taken care of. You get up in the morning, uh, he's woken up by this sort of mother and father computer uh, that... Yes, the AI of the ship is named Mom. Yes, and it's a big sunny sun that just beams at him and tells him what a good boy he is. And the whole ship seems designed for taking care of a toddler. And he is... A teenager. I want to say in his teens, yeah. So he's clearly been living there for a long time. Um, like, 
everything around him is like Playmobil. He eats with a with a a talking spoon with a smiley face on it that talks to him about nutrition. <laughs> Reminds him to chew his food 32 times. Yes. And, you know, he's sent on these missions by the computer that are just purely to keep him occupied. I, at first I thought, okay, what's he doing here? Like, what are these missions? Uh, but those scenes of the missions were just so hilarious to me. Like, he's sent off you start off with a list of missions to choose from and it's like, Oh, there's something on the hull. What could it be? You go outside. Oh, it's a birthday present. Yay. Yay. Uh, opens the box. Oh, it's a, it's a grab and Gary. I'll put this with all my other grab and Gary's that I've received as birthday presents. Or there's an avalanche. We've got to save the, the villagers. Oh, it's a, turns out it's a ice cream avalanche. Yay. And you've got to eat them out with your trusty spoon. So the the wonderful part of that to me is just how much it makes you want to rebel, which is a very teenage feeling. You really feel this character. He, much less than, than Vela, I feel like... He's just bored. He seems less driven than Vela. She's very clearly interested in overthrowing the, you know, horrifying reign of Mog Chatra. He's just bored and kind of fed up and... And ready to get get on with his life and do something important. And the interesting thing about it to me is like, as you start to do that, you really start to question like, what the hell is going on here? Yeah, why on earth would they put a child in this in this machine to create boredom and to infantilize him for his entire life? It, it is very mysterious, but it's also just hysterical. He's uh, his only interaction is with uh, the other characters, uh, the Yarn Pals, which are these very cute knitted creatures that he's constantly saving on his little quote-unquote missions. Um, and, of course, the Space Weaver, which pilots his ship. It seems like it's a very yarn-based technology on this spaceship. <laughs> yeah, very strange world there. So the... So Shay's plotline is essentially, first of all, him. You have to you have to play through quite a bit of boredom with Shay. Now it's all very funny and it's very amusing, but you're you're playing through some of the same missions and other things several times until finally something changes. So you might you essentially have to play all four of these missions and then start replaying them because there's nothing else to do. And the second time you play one of the missions where you have to stop a runaway train, uh, which of course it's impossible not to stop the runaway train, but if you, out of sheer boredom, both as Shay's boredom and in a way your own player boredom, uh, once you start trying to sabotage the missions and make them go wrong, then in the train mission you can fail to save the train and fall to your quote-unquote death and you land on a pile of very, very fluffy spikes. And uh, it's at that point that you meet Merrick, who is this very mysterious and kind of sinister wolf, or perhaps person in a wolf suit who lives in the bowels of the ship, and starts instructing Shay to do other more meaningful missions, which mostly involve rescuing quote-unquote creatures that you never actually see using the ship's grabby arm kind of a weird scenario but essentially you know shay is overjoyed to finally have something that seems theoretically quote-unquote real to do 
but is it? Ooh. Yeah, and that's uh, that's kind of the setup and the and the overall plot of the game. Um, out of all that, what pl- puzzles really stood out to you? Because to me, the absolute best puzzle was the Maiden's Feast puzzle. Right at the beginning? Yeah. Yeah, actually, I really enjoyed that moment. There was a lot to... Uh, uh, although, I actually, I did find it a little bit frustrating because at first I had a really hard time figuring out how to... Essentially, you're swapping items with the other girls who are waiting to be eaten by Mog Chathra. And I had a little bit of a hard time figuring out how to swap with people. You can drag your objects onto them and they will exchange them with you for something else. And there were a few situations where you'd swap and then they would give you your original item back and other situations where they wouldn't. Um, But overall, that was a pretty cool puzzle. You know, and I thought that was more similar to your old school game uh, of this genre. Like, there's, it's a very, it's a puzzle involving a lot of intricate exchanges and dialogue choices. The only thing that made it easy, like, this would have been the hardest puzzle in the game if these characters weren't all, like, glued in place on the same screen. That's true. So, when you get to the next, uh, the the next, uh, area with her, uh, uh, Bird Village. Maryloft. Where the bird persons live, there is it's Maryloft. So when when she visits uh, uh, Bird Village, she um, she gets uh, similar puzzles. It's a it's an item exchanging puzzle, and um, you know she's got to get the shoes and she's got to get the eggs and this and that. Uh, but it's not as difficult a puzzle. There's fewer moving parts. There's fewer kind of possible wrong dialogue choices. Um, but it's a much more time-consuming puzzle because of all the running back and forth. Mm-hmm. The first puzzle to me really encapsulates, like, this is what an adventure game is about. I feel you, although I actually think I took a lot longer in Maryloft than I did in the initial town. and I think it was a little bit more complicated puzzle, but it was also a, a little less obvious in who you needed to talk to or what you needed to do. And there were some problems with it. Like, for example, um, in Maryloft, there's a part where you can get a peach that's um, part of... uh, It's not actually part of any puzzles while you're in Maryloft. It's just this item. It's a peach that you can get from one of the trees. And it's a consumable. You can eat it. And there were several times throughout the game where I thought, maybe I'm supposed to eat the peach or maybe I'm supposed to give the peach to someone. But you actually don't need it until much, much later in the game. And by that time, I had eaten the peach already. And uh, it took me a very, very long time to figure out that you could go back to Maryloft, uh, trek all the way back through the forest and up the ladder and all the way back to Maryloft and up to the tree and pick another peach because they're a renewable. Um, and then trek all the way back down to the very end of the game again in order to use that peach in a much, much later puzzle. So um, there were a lot of little quirks to it like that. I wouldn't say it was at all hard. Uh, I, I would put it at some place between uh, a game like Gone Home or the Walking Dead uh, adventure games, which have very, very little in the way of puzzles, um, and uh, kind of halfway between those and something more puzzle-oriented like the Monkey Island games, where you really did have to do quite a bit of puzzle solving. You know, I have not actually gotten around yet to playing any of these Telltale uh, games and I'm just gonna break for a moment to talk about that because they seem like a very different breed 
of adventure game Very. that's much more about character interaction and relationship than it is about puzzle solving. Yeah, so different. If you have played games from Telltale in the adventure game genre, but not some of the older adventure games from LucasArts, then you're playing a pretty different style of game. Now, I think they're both going to appeal to you, but uh, Telltale's games are all about making choices during the plot, usually in terms of dialogue choices. So, you know, in the Walking Dead games, for example, you know, you your choices are tend to be things like, do I go to save this character or go to save this character? Do I act friendly towards this character or do I tell that character off? Uh, and those choices have really interesting effects throughout the story. But essentially, you're watching the story unfold and then jumping in at key moments to make quick decisions about which way it's going to go. You're almost never solving puzzles. I think the closest to a puzzle I remember solving in the Walking Dead games is in the very first scene, there's a quote-unquote puzzle where you have to find batteries to power a radio, and they're on the floor. Just look for them. They're right there. So (laughs) there's not really much in the way of puzzle solving. Oh, and then, of course, you have to figure out which way the batteries go in. Plus side first or minus side first. It's really, really puzzling um so those games are more about directing a plot and choosing your characters you know interactions with other people rather than solving puzzles in order to advance the story in the telltale games the story is going to advance whether you do anything or not and you're just steering it yeah i think that's like in this kind of game the the puzzles are what restricts the flow of the plot and the payoff is that the plot flows forward and in those types of games um, the, the the plot flows forward whether you like it or not and you're just along for the ride trying to direct it in a way that satisfies you. Mm-hmm. You have essentially no control over the plot in a traditional adventure game. It's just, uh, it's going to happen uh, as soon as you put the right object in the right person's hands. Yeah. So both games have their merits and I really, really love the Walking Dead games from Telltale and I also really, really love this style of games. But yeah, they're different and uh, I think it's really fascinating how they've branched off. I also think in some ways they're different in terms of uh, control. Uh, The Telltale games are really designed to be played on a console. So like they're probably their primary platform or things like the Xbox 360. Um, And they really work well with a gamepad. Something about those games just just clicks with a gamepad because essentially you're presented with an option and you can press X to, you know, do one thing or you know A to do something else. Whereas in Broken Age or some of the other point-and-click adventure games like this, you can use a gamepad, but you probably shouldn't because essentially what you're doing then is using a gamepad as a mouse. If you can, just play it with a mouse, or hopefully, if it's out by the time that you hear this, play it on a touchscreen. I would I would say touchscreen seems like a definitely a natural fit for this game. So if by the time you're listening to this, you have a chance to play it on a touchscreen, go for that. Uh, but it was extremely enjoyable on the computer on my big beautiful iMac. The art was just gorgeous. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the ending of the game. What? Yeah. Do you? Th- <laughs> what did you make of it? <laughs> I uh, I suspected. Okay, actually, before we before we say that, I should say that. I should say that by the ending of the game, what I mean is the ending of part one. Because uh, it, it's obvious that this was so, sort of a part of the structure of the game from the beginning. But essentially, at the quote-unquote ending of part one, or the middle of the game, the stories come into sync. Um, and uh, considering we're past the spoiler break, I can say that that's because you get 
the only moment in part one where the two characters are in the same place at the same time. When you kill Mog Chothra, it falls to the ground, uh, you know, and, uh, oh, and to, to explain how, you know, you've killed Mog Chothra because you have discovered that in the town of Shell Mound, the next town over from yours, uh, where you finally arrive, there is a temple to the Dead Eye God. And when you enter the temple of the Dead Eye God, uh, you discover that the Dead Eye God, many hundreds of years ago, was actually just a dude who's in a spaceship of some kind, perhaps one similar to Shay's. And uh, he's crashed there on the planet that Vela inhabits. And uh, he spent some time talking to the locals, but he wasn't able to repair his ship and take off. And so he just put himself into stasis. But when Vela arrives, she wakes him up and she talks to him a little bit. He's a guy named Alex. He's somewhere in his 20s, I'd imagine. And um, Vela helps him repair his ship. And in exchange, he offers to use the power of his ship, some kind of laser beam or something, to help her take down Mog Chothra. So you do that. And Mog Chothra crashes to the ground on the beach in Shell Mound. And out of Mog Chothra's mouth wanders a confused-looking Shay. And Shay and Vela sort of stare at each other for a moment, and through a moment of confusion, Vela ends up inside the ship, inside of, theoretically, Mog Chothra. Um, and Shay is outside in Vela's world, and the door locks. And that's the ending of the game. And it raises more questions than it answers... But I will say I did find it satisfying because I do feel like while it did sort of raise more questions than it answered, it sort of promised that there are answers. I don't think this is a, you know, lost situation. <laughs> I think this is I a don't know, game man. of answers. I don't know, man. What are those numbers? <laughs> but uh, I think that, like, I, I kind of, I really liked that because I suspected that the ship was Mog Chathra. And the reason I suspected that was... The art style really hinted at it through the hexagons. Like, I'm surprised you picked up on that. I did not. The ship is hexagons top to bottom, and so are Mog Chathra's eyes. And so, to me, I was like, oh, that, I bet you. Because I, I, and I, like, I, I actually thought that not while I was playing the game. Like, I was playing it, and then I took a break from it, and I was, I kept thinking about it. I was like, what, how are these two characters connected are they in different realities are they in different times is the age broken somehow <laughs> but uh i thought about it i was like you know what i bet you that mog chathra is not what he seems and that's when i thought about it yeah uh, and so i was pretty i was pretty excited when i realized that i was right <laughs> congratulations that was, that was my aha moment i didn't get the aha moment from the puzzle so i might as well have gotten it there so then i suppose merrick down in the belly of the ship was directing uh, Shay to pick up maidens. Was that yeah, the action the, of the game? On the little... I, 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 the, what really confuses me is like why he needed this kid to do that at all. Because it seemed like like a, all he needed to do was press a button. It's like press A to pick up like weird Pokemon looking thing. Yeah. what Which were in fact apparently on the outside uh, maidens. I think yeah. that there's something more to it that we haven't seen there yet. Yeah. Like, what? why does he want these maidens? What is he doing with them? Why is this ship eating people? <laughs> Maybe it runs on people. <laughs> the maidens are quarantined inside the ship in a special room that you can see from the outside, but you don't get to go into. 
um, from the ship. And so I, I think that perhaps we'll get inside there in part two. Yeah, hopefully we get to get into the room with the babes. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also clear that, you know, first of all, in Vela's world, Mog Chothra is not the only Mog. And it's yeah, also... did say that. It's also clear that in shay's world his ship is not the only ship it's a part of something called project dandelion which is mentioned once or twice and also alex mentions that his ship i think was part of project dandelion so we don't really know what project dandelion was yet but both alex the quote-unquote dead-eye god who is about 14 years older than shay and the mogs arrive about once every 14 years and uh, Shay himself, they're both a part of this project, Project Dandelion. Who knows yeah. what its purpose is? Hopefully we'll find out in part two. Faster than light travel is made possible by virgin blood. <laughs> Delicious. Um, so, yeah, I think that's pretty interesting. I'd say that the the ending was satisfying, but it didn't really answer questions. I do think, though, that they did a really, really good job of making it feel complete enough that I could play it and feel good about waiting for part two. Now, I have a question about part two. Mm-hmm. I I bought part one. Mm-hmm. Do I simply get part two when it comes out? Yes, you do. So I don't have to pay anything else or get it as a DLC or anything like that? Yeah, so the way that they've structured this is not really like the way that Telltale does, which is... Actually, no, Telltale sells by the season, unless... I suppose it depends on what platform you're on. But they're not selling it as episodic content. When you buy the game today you are not just buying part one you are buying the entire game but you are getting part one now and you will get part two immediately upon its release for free same goes for if you were a kickstarter backer you'll get it when it's ready and you'll like it yeah so i think that's a pretty good way of doing things but it also kind of feels a bit like the model that a lot of games are using sort of post minecraft this uh uh what's the word they use for it on steam early access it's an early access game. And I, I'm i not always a fan of that. But I think in this case it works because they're kind of skirting the line between early access and episodic content. And I played this and felt good about it. Whereas some early yeah. access games I've played and, and thought, well, this was an unfinished beta and who knows if it'll ever be finished. And it was a waste of my time. Yeah, I, I, I definitely... It's hard to know in a world where games are being released in this way if you're playing a game at the right time. So Minecraft is a good example. I started playing that uh, a couple, few years ago uh, when it was relatively new and it was a very simple game. And I, I left it. I came back to it. Uh, later on when I played it again, uh, it was a much better game. Uh, left it, came back to it again. Uh, played it, and I felt like it had become an overcomplicated game. So, um, where uh, where in that kind of a of a release structure, how do you how do you gauge like, yeah, when to play or what to play? It makes the decision so much harder. And how do you decide if it's a good game? Because there's the there's the you know, if, yeah, by what yardstick at what time? If I go to an early access game and I play it and I don't have fun. Well, am I wrong for saying this is a bad game? Because you could just argue back, no, of course, this is a, it's an unfinished game. Someone will definitely tell you you're wrong. Of course. But, uh, you know, if I'm 
paying the price of admission and I'm playing a game, I expect to have fun. I think you've seen a lot of early access games kind of have this criticism. Uh, I think that that's where they really did a great job here. You are getting a one, as far as I can tell, 100% finished first act of the game. Yeah. How, how much time did it take you to complete? That's a good question. I would have to check my exact Steam time, but I think it was somewhere around three or four hours. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I think it definitely falls within our, our length goals. Yeah, about the same for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I felt like it was a really complete game at that three or four hours. It told a really fascinating and interesting story. It had a lot of humor. I really enjoyed it. I did go back and play it mostly a second time through, uh, just to kind of refresh my memory before we jumped on this podcast. And I still enjoyed it. I enjoyed playing through it a second time because I got to choose dialogue choices I hadn't seen before. Here's some really interesting new uh, new bits. What do you think were the themes of the story? Oh, I'm always bad at this. Uh, you'll have to ask my English teacher. But I think that uh, it's a primarily, to me, a, a story of teenage rebellion. And so you've got rebelling against sort of the infantilizing of the computer and it directing every aspect of your life. And, and you've got, uh, you've got Vela, uh, rebelling against the convention of, you know, you know, her whole, you know, creepy, the lottery style, everyone wants to murder you. Yeah. And so that, that was very effective to me. Mm-hmm. And then they both shared uh, that theme of essentially children growing up and rejecting the world that they've been presented with, yeah. you know, trying to cast off the traditions and the, and the, the plan that was set out I, for them. I always I'm kind of curious about like where titles come from. And so this is a game where, unless they reveal something in part two, like I have no idea why they decided to call it Broken Age. I'm really curious about that too. I I think that initially I thought, oh, this is a fracture in time where these yeah. are two characters living on different planes of existence or different dimensions or in different eras or something. But no, it seems that they share the same world. So, yeah, that's what I thought at first. Maybe maybe it'll turn out that the, that the Broken Age is the Teen Age. <laughs> Perhaps so. Uh, I, the, the most fascinating thing I've heard or read about this was people talking about the game's take on sexism, which I think is totally valid. Um, I I think this game, in addition to being about sort of teen angst and uh, rebelling against the the world that's been planned for you by your elders, uh, it's also sort of about institutionalized sexism, or at least uh, Vela's story is. Uh, it's It's a story about a girl who's growing up in a society where, in the most literal possible sense, girls are being commodified they are being turned into consumables for this creature monster cakes i know and um i think it's in the most literal possible sense sort of about that uh about rebelling against that about rebelling against uh being seen as an object or being manipulated by the society around you uh and uh I think it's fascinating how some of the characters completely buy into it, like Grandma um, totally buys into it, uh, and yet uh, other characters like Grandpa Beastender, which, by the way, is the greatest name because you you get these hints. In fact, it's not so much a hint. Um, Vela's Grandpa, uh, whose name is... Uh, oh, I don't remember his first name now, but he was Grandpa, Grandpa Beastender. Grandpa Brommel Beastender. Brommel Beastender. Uh, he says that... Uh, 
Sugar Bunting used to be a town of warriors uh, called Steel Bunting. And uh, they were fighters. And she's clearly a, a chip off of, of his block from an older generation of, of fighters. But now they've settled into this uh, complacent um, appeasement of the Mogs. And they're now, the, uh, they're now feeding their daughters almost gleefully. It's sort of a uh, Stockholm syndrome. You know, they're no longer just appeasing the Mogs to save the town. It's become something that they celebrate culturally. They have no shame. <laughs> None at all. And I think that sort of ties into the idea of it being about sort of um, uh, sexism because, you know, there's there's ways in our culture that we celebrate these totally sexist uh, tropes or these totally sexist uh, cultural uh, traditions that if you really stand back and look at them are really just feeding girls to the machine and i think that's that's a, a lens to look at the plot of this game through that's really interesting you know i didn't i didn't think about that at all but it's an interesting way to look at it for sure it's a a great game with a lot going on in terms of theme that you can appreciate on many levels and i think that's one of them mm-hmm. absolutely uh if i if i replay it it'll definitely be a new lens to look at it through my name is valoria People call me Vela. Guess it's time to face the cupcakes. Well, a lot of people call me Traitor. What if we fought the monster instead of feeding it? The Grand Mogs have visited our lands for as long as anyone can remember. If you destroy the feast, Mog Chathra will destroy this village. That's what I get for asking questions. Why did we willingly offer sacrificial maidens for that beast to devour? We were once a village of warriors. We had pride and honor. This can't be right. I hear him! I know that if I act on my instinct to fight, I would be putting my whole village in danger. So I'll ask a new question. Instead of, what if we fought the monster? What I want to know is, how do I kill it? So where can people play this game? People can play it... Uh, well, I picked it up on Steam, as did I. Uh, Actually, I should say that I picked it up through the original Kickstarter campaign. Um, so I received a Steam key and also a DRM-free copy. I'm pretty sure if you prefer a DRM-free copy of a game, that you can still do that if you buy it through, I think, the Humble Store, or you may be able to buy it directly from Double Fine. So you could probably get yeah. the game DRM-free if you'd like. I think this is just going to be one of those situations where I tell you, Google it. Yeah, go Google it. You'll find it. And I'm pretty sure you can also get it on uh, Mac, Windows, or Linux. The plan is clearly to have it also available on iOS. But as far as I can tell, I think that they're waiting until Act 2 is complete to release it on iOS. I think it seems that they're wanting to release it as a complete finished product on that platform. Yeah, and I think that's probably a, a good idea. Yeah, just to release a complete game. Yeah. But if you're willing, as I was, to jump into this game before it is entirely done, I think you are not going to be disappointed at all. I think you're going to have a great time, and you'll have something to look forward to later this year with the uh, second act coming out. So, uh, to conclude, um, do you have anything on the horizon that you're excited about for uh, upcoming gaming? Oh, yes. Well, I should say that I've been 
playing a lot of uh, Hearthstone on the iPad. It just came out for the iPad as we're recording this, although when you're hearing this, it's probably been out for a little while. And uh, it is an absolutely fantastic translation of the desktop, PC, and Mac version of the game to iOS. I've rarely seen so polished a game on iOS. And so I've been um, working my way through that and uh, trying to build up a deck. Haven't spent a dime on the in-app purchase element of the game yet, and I don't know if that's really going to be a big part of it for me. But considering how great and fun the game is and the way that it plays, I think this is a game that I would not mind paying money for these in-app card decks at all. Um, I think it's really just a really, really well-done game. I'm playing the hell out of that right now. Yeah, it seems like a, a, an interesting game. It's by the, it's by Blizzard, yes? Yes, it's... Uh, it's, it's related to World of Warcraft? Yeah, it's themed with World of Warcraft uh, characters, but it's a collectible card game uh, in the vein of Magic the Gathering, but it has a bit of a deck-building mechanic. You're collecting cards as you play to uh, to build onto your deck, although not really like Dominion-style, more just like longitudinal, you know, over-time deck-building. But it plays really quickly, and it's really, really easy to pick up. The rules are almost glaringly obvious. You can play one game of it and have a pretty good sense of all of the core mechanics. And then everything else is just sort of contextual. You can hold your finger down on any card and it will explain its basic rules to you in one sentence that's clear and simple to understand. And that's a great that's a great uh, kind of platform for... The fact that it's now out on the iPad, I think this kind of game is a, is a great natural fit for the iPad because it has that tactile feel of the cards, but the digital help that, you know, a, a very structured, rules-based, turn-based game like this... Uh, it just works very well with, you know, it's, if you have ever played any of these, um, Magic the Gathering or Pokemon or any of these collectible card games, um, I was initially, when I heard about these going digital, which so many of them, almost, almost all of them now have, I, I was thinking to myself, you know, could that really work, you know, in a situation where it's not face to face with a deck of cards? And, Gosh, it just really does. It's perfect. This is such a great platform for it because first off, with physical cards, they can't just give you your starter deck for free, but with digital decks, they can get you started totally for free and you can get a, a sense of whether the game is any good for free. And then you can earn cards for free as you play as well, which is the main way that you earn cards in Hearthstone. If you do feel like opening more booster packs more quickly... Uh, then you can do that and it helps you build out your deck and explore things. But they've done some things that I thought were just really, really smart. One is that it seems like such an obvious thing in a game like this to include a card selling or trading mechanic to be able to exchange cards with your friends, but they have not included that. I think maybe because they were burned by the auction house mechanics on uh, Diablo 3 or maybe just because they thought better of it, this is a game about getting cards that drop more or less randomly for you and you alone. So you've, in a way, the card collection is more just about leveling up your character and being able to accomplish new things. It's not, it's not a marketplace where you have to think about the value of your cards. So I think that's a really... That's nice. It really took some of the, I think, stress out of the game. You know, you're not... I, I, I think that was a really wise decision on their part. And um, really, it's just so quick. The, the gameplay is quick. You're 
never making an agonizing choice. And each set, each game against an opponent, whether you're playing against a real person over the internet or playing a practice game against the AI, uh, the games never seem to take more than about five to 10 minutes. So it's That's a great. really perfect game for mobile. So if you have an iPad, um, or I should say, I suppose, if you have an iPad that will run this, because I don't think it will run on the first generation iPad, and it may not run on the iPad 2. I haven't checked that. But if it will run on your iPad, there is no reason you shouldn't already have this. It's free. Try it out, and I think you'll love it. All right. And now, for me, the game I'm most excited about right now is Trine, and I'm going to make you play it with me immediately after this. <laughs> Shane and I are Trine playing two, Trine specifically. 2, yeah. Uh, I've got my wife in on the game. Uh, it's a great... One of the things that I love in games, a game that I always look for, is a cooperative game that allows both local and remote co-op. And that's now, really hard to if find. if that game... It's pretty hard to find. Now, if that game is a puzzle platformer, just allow me to give you my money right now. Because I love puzzle platformers. I love cooperative games. I love cooperative puzzle platformers. Uh, really just scratches all of my gaming, it, my biggest gaming itches. So uh, I won't, you know, rave too much about this game because I haven't gotten far enough into it to say if it's like the best thing ever or only something I'm really enjoying. Um, it's got but... a lot of charm, though. I think that the uh, the main thing that stands out about it to me so far is visually, it's really impressive for a... Uh, to whatever you'd call it, 2.5D platformer. It's got a lot of really colorful, beautiful art, uh, all three-dimensional, great lighting effects, great uh, water effects. It's just a gorgeous-looking game. And it's not a brand-new game. It's one that you will see pop up on Steam sales and other things all the time. So Trine 2 is definitely a recommendation if you have a second or third person in your life to play the game with. And even if you don't, uh, if you're playing it solo you actually play as all three of the important characters by switching between the three in a really kind of fun character switching mechanic. Not quite a Lost Vikings kind of thing, but more a all three characters inhabit the same space and you can transform into these three different character forms. So really cool game. Shane and I are going to play it right after we record this episode. And uh, you know what? Let's get off and do that right now. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us this week. Uh, Nate will be back next week as we talk about a game that we have been looking forward to recording a podcast about for ages. We're going to be talking about FTL, Faster Than Light. FTL, Faster Than Light is a game out on the PC, Mac, Linux, and now fi finally the iPad. And it is the perfect iPad game. FTL is an absolutely amazingly fun uh, spaceship sim slash roguelike slash no adventure. No, don't spoil it. <laughs> it's don't not spoil a spoiler, it. you horrible person. I love this game so much, and I'm so looking forward to this episode. So if you can, before now and the next try, check out FTL. It's a fantastic game, and it is available on a platform that you can run. I promise you that. Uh, so we're going to be talking about FTL next week, and specifically, we're going to be going into detail about FTL strategy, because that's a game that you can pick up and complete each run of the game in probably uh, 15 minutes to an hour. But in order to really do well at that game, you're going to need some tips. And fortunately, I've got 
I'm not that great at it, but I've got two people with me, Shane and Nate, who are both pretty darn good at the game. So I'm really looking forward oh, for th- I, to hearing their tips. I don't know about that. Uh, hopefully we can just all share enough tips with each other that we can finally... One of us could be decent at this game. <laughs> well, I'm expecting that you guys will improve my game in FTL pretty significantly just by telling me all of your tips. So I can't oh, wait. Yeah. Uh, this has been a great episode of The Short Game. You can follow our show on Twitter at underscore short game, or you can find the show notes and all of the details of our upcoming episodes and listen to our past episodes at www.theshortgame.net. I've been Reagan Kelly. You can follow me on Twitter at Reagan K, spelled R-A-Y-G-A-N-K. And Shane? I am and continue to be Shane Kelly, and uh, my Twitter handle is at 8BitShane. And uh, I can't wait to chat with you again next week. Hopefully Nate will be back from his uh, long trip and his super awesome rock show, and we'll see you soon. See you soon.